Thank you, Natalie, so much, and Daniel as well. Uh, it's really beautiful and wonderful introduction to um, this topic. And good morning to you. Uh, welcome. My name is Clay Holland. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King, and uh, we are continuing our sermon series for the summer in the Psalms. And this morning, uh, that means we are turning our attention to Psalm 5. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Psalm 5. It's on page 449. Uh, in the black Bibles that are in front of you. And if you remember, if you were here when we started this service, uh, this sermon series on Psalms several weeks ago, I guess five weeks ago now, uh, we were in Psalm 1, and, and, I talk, and I preached on Psalm 1, and I talked about how Psalm 1 is an introductory psalm to the entire Psalter because it presents a way of life uh, that is a, a dichotomy between the way of wisdom and the way of righteousness, uh, which rests in Christ and on his word, and the way of wickedness, which rests in trust in yourself and pursuing your own ends. And we talked about how that was introductory for the things that came after it in Psalms. And Psalm 5 is really an example of that. It is the practical outworking of the principles of Psalm 1, in a particular life situation of the psalmist who claims to be David, and we believe that it is David writing this psalm, uh, but also because it is written down in the scriptures, applies to our lives as well with respect to this dual path, uh, this dichotomous path between a way of righteousness towards God and the way of wickedness towards self, which actually leads to destruction. So let me read Psalm 5 now for us. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. O Lord, our God pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
One of the things that you'll notice about the Psalms is that although there are several different genres of the Psalms, and actually it's very important for you to know kind of what the genre of a Psalm is when you read it so you know how to apply it to your life, there are Psalms of thanksgiving, there are Psalms of praise, there are Psalms of lament, uh, there are imprecatory Psalms where the psalmist is calling out for God's judgment to be uh, um, enacted on God's enemies. There are all these kinds of different genres of psalms, but they all get wrapped up into one mega genre of what is known as wisdom literature. Biblical wisdom. Wisdom, simply defined, is the art of biblical living. Wisdom is the art of biblical living. Uh, It is the cultivated ability to live your life under the lordship of Jesus. And when you live that way, the Bible says that there are things that are generally true. And when you do not live that way, the Bible says that there are also things that are generally true on the other hand. So, for example, one of the things that I've noticed that I've been in pastoral ministry is that Traits and attributes that people cultivate over the course of their lives very often become heightened uh, when you age. So a person who has in their life, in their youth, and in their young adulthood, and in their adulthood, cultivated bitterness or has cultivated, um, you know, just negativity, uh, when they are of a certain age, that tends to heighten and not decrease a bitterness and a negativity. But the, also is, the, uh, the opposite is also true, that people who deeply treasure grace in their youth and in their young adulthood and in their adulthood, they treasure it so much that they are able to be gracious to other people and exude that grace. As they age, that grace abounds in them. Now, obviously, we live in a fallen world, and there are physiological elements that apply to this, but this is wisdom. It is generally true that what you spend a lifetime cultivating in your heart presents itself in your life and in your words, to go back, actually, to the theme of Psalm 5. Jesus says the same thing in teaching his disciples. He says this in Luke chapter 6. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is true, whatever it is that we're cultivating in our heart, and the Bible defines our heart as the motivational center of our lives, that's what comes out of our mouths. That's what is enacted in our lives. Psalm 5 really is, is, is focused on speech and how evil that is cultivated in our hearts uh, manifests itself in the words that are used and the purpose behind those words, whereas somebody who relies on and trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord uses their words in a completely different way. How does the wicked person use his or her words? Where does that come from? Where does it lead? How does the righteous person use his or her words? Where does it come from? Where does it lead? That's what Psalm 5 is about. Now first, let's be straight about what Psalm 5 is not saying. 
Psalm 5 is not saying that you become a good person by using your words in a good way or you become a bad person in using your words in a bad way. Remember, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks and Psalm 5 actually says this. In verse David, in verse 7, David is clear that he is standing as a righteous man that, that comes from God himself. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. He doesn't say, but I, because I'm a good man, will enter your house and stand in your presence. But I, though because I use really good words, will enter your house and be in your presence. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. The opposite is also true. Look at verse 9. Their inmost self is destruction, Psalm 5 says about the, the wicked person. Their inmost self. The heart is the inmost self. And if that is destruction, what proceeds from it is destructive. And that is the path. What begins in the heart, either one transformed by God or one fixated on the self, radiates out of our mouths. So, like we did in Psalm 1, let's contrast the speech of the righteous with the speech of the wicked. And we'll do this under two categories. First, the object of our speech. And second, the posture of our speech. The object of our speech and the posture of our speech. Let's look first at the object of our speech. Now, Psalm 5 says that the object of the speech of the wicked person is ultimately themselves. The object of the speech of the wicked person is ultimately themselves. In Psalm 5, the major contrast between the righteous and the wicked is who it is that is being exalted. Who is being lifted high by our words and our speech? We'll look at the righteous in a minute, but the wicked, for the wicked, the goal is to exalt themselves. Verse 5, the boastful, the boastful shall not stand before you. Those who boast do what? They make themselves the object of their words, of their speech. They exalt themselves. And obviously, this makes tons of sense. If you subscribe to a worldview that says all you have in this world is yourself, God is irrelevant in your life, all you have in this world is yourself. Your heart will be set on exalting yourself, protecting yourself. And that includes using your words when necessary to tear other people down, to lie about them, to use your words deceitfully, to bear false witness about yourself. Because if you make yourself look good enough, maybe in your inmost being you can start to feel in some ways like that might be true. Now self-exaltation has become so normative and so normalized culturally but I think even the Christian community has lost sight of how antithetical it is to biblical wisdom and God's vision for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. We have essentially so normalized lying that it barely registers with us. We've normalized lying in our political discourse, and that doesn't matter on what side of the aisle you sit on. So we're just used to it. We, ex we just expect it. We expect everything to be a lie. A large part of our cultural fascination with influencers, right? Not completely, but in many respects, 
is built upon people projecting the things about themselves that they want you to see. But hiding the things from you that they don't want you to see. It is not an entirely truthful representation of a human being. Yet we're captivated by it so much so that it creates longing and desire and coveting and all kinds of things in our own hearts. But what of the righteous? Well, the object of righteous speech is not the self, but ultimately it is God. See, if God is what you hold as ultimate in your life, if God is the, is the ultimate, is the highest good, he is going to be the one that you turn for meaning to and the one that you turn to uphold what is good and right. This is what the psalmist does in verse 1. He cries out to him, Give ear to my words, O Lord. You see the object of his speech. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. There is so much in this one verse to unpack. We can't fully do it. But the purpose and the point uh, right now is just to think, think of the who is the object of David's speech. Who is he calling out to himself or to God? And there is encouraging instruction here on prayer and how to pray. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about this poetic device that you see throughout the Psalms called parallelism. Parallelism is taking a word or a phrase and repeating it, but in repeating it, heightening it or heightening the emotional impact of it over time. That is parallelism. This is what the psalmist does here in verse 5. Give ear to my words. He is articulating his prayers to God. Consider my groaning. The words have left him. Now it's just an unarticulated sadness and pain. But that, 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 that he still believes, that Psalmist still believes that the God will bend his ear toward and, and listen and hear. And then he says, give attention to the sound of my cry. If words are articulated and formed and groans are silent and personal, cries to God are shouts of desperation in whatever situation you are in. But all of these things are aimed at one place and to one person. They're aimed to God, who is a God of steadfast love. The question you see is not, will you suffer and will you struggle in this life? That is not the question of Psalm 5. It is a given. The question is, where will you turn? Where will you go when you do struggle, when you do suffer? Do you go to God who promises to hear and attend to you or to yourself? Which leads to bitter consequences. Because after the object of our speech, we see the posture of our speech. In Psalm 5, the posture of the wicked in speaking is devious action. The posture is, uh, of the wicked is devious action. It makes total sense as a progression of action. The, the context here of verse 5 is that David, who is the king of Israel, who has been appointed by God himself, he is God's representative to rule over Israel, is being lied about, is being attacked, is being plotted against from within his own covenant community. These are not outsiders who are attacking David. These are Israelites, people inside Israel who are lying about him, who are plotting against him, who are 
trying to gain support by using flattering tongues against the king. Devious action, and it makes total sense as a progression of action. If you're boastful and you rely on yourself, you will be engaged in everything possible that you can do to exalt yourself. In the context of this psalm, it means using words both to attack others, but in the context here, because David is the representative of God for the people of Israel, the attacks on the king are attacks on God himself. You see the way this unfolds through Psalm 5. In verse 6, they are bloodthirsty and deceitful. Verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. When all that you have to rely on is yourself, you'll do whatever you can to exalt yourself. You'll deceive, you'll lie, you'll flatter in order to get what you want but without authenticity because it's all about you. The expense of others doesn't matter. And Psalm 5 calls this kind of devious action evil. Calls it evil. But what of the righteous? What of the one whose trust is in the Lord? There is a completely different progression for the one who places his or her faith in the Lord. The one who fears God, as we have already seen, calls out to God and then does two things which have always been and probably will always be very countercultural and seen by many as crazy. They watch and worship call out to God and then watch and worship. Not take actions into your own hands, not fight fire with fire, not try to defeat evil with evil. Watch and worship. The one who fears God watches. Look at verse three. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. This probably is actually a literal sacrifice. It takes place in the morning, Psalm 5 says. So you get this picture of David preparing a sacrifice for God, calling out to God, asking God to do something, and then setting himself up to watch with eager expectation with respect to what God does in complete and total trust that God is in his own way, in his own time, going to act. There is a certainty to this this watching and a certainty to this waiting. What are we watching for? We're watching for God to exalt himself. We're watching for God to uphold the truth. We're watching for God to uphold righteousness. We're watching for God to fully defeat all evil and all who perpetrate evil against him and his people. And it's not wishful thinking. It's watching and waiting in the context of the steadfast love of God, which means it is sure and certain. Do you know who are great at watching and waiting in particular contexts? Not all the time, but in particular contexts, children are really good at watching and waiting if there is something that they're super excited about. When we first moved to Houston, uh, actually almost the entire time we've lived in Houston, we haven't had family here. And so when our kids were little and they were going to get a a visit from their grandparents or their aunts or uncles it was a big deal and every single place that we've ever lived whether it was an apartment or a house in Houston there's always been a window in the front that either overlooked we lived in an apartment overlooked a parking lot when we lived in our houses it lived it overlooked the street and there was always like a, a a sofa in front of that big window and so when we told our kids Nana and Grandy are gonna be here this afternoon as soon as we said that 
they would run to that sofa, they would sit on it on their knees, they would put their, their elbows on the backrest, they would put their hands in their chin, and they would just, they would stare at the street. They would stare with eager anticipation at the street. It was, gee, I mean, we, should, we never lied to them about that, but we could have to get them quiet at other points. But you don't want to, that's, don't do that. But they stared eagerly, waiting, watching. Somebody had told them that it was going to happen. They believed it to be true. And then they rejoiced when they saw the familiar cars coming down the street and the promise became reality. You know, here's something that's a little bit different from Psalm 5 to where we are today. In Psalm 5, David writes this psalm as someone who is deeply alone. He really is. He really is deeply alone in his suffering and in his struggles. You may feel deeply alone in your suffering and your struggle. You may actually be in deeply alone in it today. But that is part of the blessing of having a church family. You know, when we make vows, you know, when you join Christ the King and you make vows and you make promises to do things, it's not perfunctory. You're actually promising to be there for other people, to watch with them and wait with them in their suffering and in their struggling. You don't have to be. It's one, one of the greatest things about being a community of God's people is to be able to watch and wait with other people. And there are people that are doing that, watching and waiting and feeling really alone right now in the midst of our church family. There are those that deeply desire to be married. They desire a spouse. They make that known to the Lord with words, with groans, with cries even. And now they watch and wait. There are those who deeply desire to have children. And they come every single week to worship to a church that on its rolls has 500 children between birth and fifth grade. That's hard to do. That really is hard to do. They make their desire known to the Lord. They use words. They groan. They cry out and they watch. And they wait. There are those who are seeing their teenage or adult children veering from the path of faith that has always been at the heart of their family life. And they cry out on their behalf to God with words, with groans, with cries. And now they watch and they wait. They can't, do they can't take matters into their own hands. They watch and they wait. But do they have to do it alone? One of the most amazing things that you can do as a part of this church family is simply to watch and wait with other people. Let them know that they are not alone in it. Let them know that there are other people in it with them. And one of the great benefits for your own heart in watching and waiting with other people who are suffering and struggling is that it fights against your or my proclivity to judge, right? It's really hard to judge another person when you are really in it with them. You can stand on the outside, right, and say, well, you know, if you'd have just read my parenting book, you know, this wouldn't be happening to you. Or, you know, if you just tried a little harder, you've just done X, Y, or Z, you can do that from the outside. It's a lot harder to do that when you're face-to-face -face or side-by-side -side with someone who is struggling and suffering. And Psalm 5 is clear that it is not about that. David is not suffering the attacks of evil people because of his sin. David is a sinner 
And there are other psalms and other places where he does bear the consequences of his sin. But in this particular psalm, he is simply being attacked and there is no given reason as to why. And he feels alone in it. But could we watch? And could we wait with each other? One of the things that that requires, one of the things that being able to call out to God and really watch and wait for him to answer, to really watch with eager expectation, is to fight against our cultural norm right now of being distracted at all costs. We, we have about a million different resources at our disposal to never feel uncomfortable emotions. Have you thought about that? When, when you're bored, like let's say you're at HEB, like I was yesterday at the, uh, you know, the, the pickup deal outside in my car. Um, you know, I text a little number, waiting for the groceries to be brought to me. Strange enough that that happens. Um, but I'm like, come on, y'all, where are my groceries? How long does it take me to pick up my phone and start scrolling, you know? When you're bored, How long does it take you to pick up a a, a device and look at a a screen? When you feel kind of any negative emotion in your life, we are actually a culture that 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 is watching all kinds of things. Short videos, long videos, images flashing past us. But is that watching producing in us an eager expectation that God is at work in our lives and in the world? Or is it further exacerbating a sense that God's holding out on you, or that whatever it is that you want should come to you immediately like it appears to happen for everyone else. When you feel uncomfortable, when you feel those pangs, when you feel that boredom, or when you feel like those, those emotional uh, kind of tugs, how long does it take you when you get home to open that first bottle of wine? Not asking that because drinking alcohol in and of itself is forbidden in the scriptures. It's not. But I'm asking it because using alcohol or anything else to dull yourself to the difficulty of the world actually makes it impossible to watch and to wait with eager expectation for the work of God. When you overconsume alcohol to dull yourself to the difficulty of life, what you are actually doing is exchanging the work of the Holy Spirit for a chemical in your life, potentially blocking the Spirit. In which way you can't watch and wait. And I bring this up because I believe that the increased use of alcohol as self-medication, like everything else, has had a massive increased boost from social media. It's a growing issue even in the church, and particularly since everything ground to a halt in 2020. And if you're struggling with that, you're probably doing it in secret. And if you are, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. I'd love to. John Wood, Andres Wood, other people here will happily watch and wait with you in that as well. It's one of the many things that none of us have to go through alone. And finally, the one who fears God worships. So you watch and you wait, and the final posture is worship. What you are doing this morning, gathering together in, 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 as God's family, is an act of rebellion against the lies and the evil of the world. You're basically coming here saying, no matter what evidence to the contrary exists out there, that evil is winning, that the lies are winning, It is absolutely not true because God sits on his throne and Jesus, his son, rules over all things. Worship is a posture of faithfulness. 
It's a posture of faithfulness. I love the end of Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now what's so important about these words of worship at the end of Psalm 5? It is this. There is no hint, not even the slightest little bit of a hint, that David's outward situation has changed. As far as we can tell in Psalm 5, evil and evildoers look like they're winning. David looks like he's going to be coup d'etat off the throne in any second. It looks like all kinds of bad things are still rumbling around, yet he says, I sit in a posture of worship. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. See, David knows something that his enemies don't. No matter what it looks like, God will defeat evil. Therefore, even when you and I look around and it looks for all the world like we're being overcome by evil, being overcome by lies in every sphere of our life, or that those who deceive the most are actually being exalted the most in our world, or that when you speak the truth, you are held in absolute ridicule, by other people around you in whatever institution you happen to be in, in those situations, even though that is happening in the moment, you can watch and wait with a posture of worship because God will bring justice in the world. How is that not just wishful thinking? How do we know that to be true? Because what David was hoping for and what David was pointing toward and what the fulfillment of God's steadfast love that David is resting is actually happened. The incarnation. Jesus came. Jesus came to earth. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again on the third day. Jesus ascended into heaven. And as we remember on this day of Pentecost, he sent the Spirit into the world to testify to all who trust in him that he is not asleep at the wheel, but is at work in the world and is at work in your life. This morning we used as our affirmation of faith the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. I want to close this morning by reading these words, starting in verse 18. And when I do, I want you, now that we have read and meditated some on Psalm 5, I want you to note the overlap between the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8 and David's words in Psalm 5. Note the groaning, the waiting, the longing, the sure and certain hope that God is at work, that God is at work through the one who groaned in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane who groaned in agony as he hung on the cross, that you and I might groan no more. So hear Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, we wait for our, the redemption of our bodies with patience. And we do so in the sure and certain hope that it will most certainly happen because our Savior rose again on the third day and lives and reigns. So Father, help us. Help us to be able to call out to you to watch, to wait, to have a posture of worship. Hear and answer our prayers, we pray, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.